rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. This is Bob Hutchins. Welcome to Rumors of Grace, episode number five. I am sitting in the office of David Cassidy. David Cassidy is a pastor of Christ Community Church here in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Welcome, David. Thank you, Bob. Great to be with you. Thanks for coming over today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, we're at the end of 2018. We're winding down the year, entering into that Christmas New Year season. So uh, thank you for taking the time to do it. I know your time is precious. Well, it's it, well. first of all, I, ju- I just wish we were drinking coffee. More, you know, <laughs> that, that would make, make it even better. It's great to be with you. Great. And um, happy, to, happy to hang out with you a little bit. Before we start, uh, how long have you been here in Franklin at this church? Four and a half years. Okay. Moved here from Austin, Texas okay. in 2014. Great. And uh, it's a great joy. People here have been very kind to us. The whole community has been very, very warm. And uh, the church has been very, very sweet to us. So you came here from Austin. Before we get into that, um, I want to learn and know a little bit more. I've known you for a few years, yep. and we've talked and met a few times, and um, but I don't know you at a deep level. So I want to go a little bit deeper today yeah. and hopefully let uh, the listeners and subscribers of this podcast get to know you. And uh, you never cease to surprise me as all the interesting things that will come up about you. <laughs> Um, you know, you hear the word Renaissance man, you know, I learned that you were quite the cook and then I learned that you're an amazing artist and obviously you're writing a book and obviously you're a pastor and you love, uh, European soccer. So, um, <laughs> I'm sure there's lots more interesting things I'm that just, maybe we could dig up or is that the extent of it? No, well, I, hopefully not. Gosh, hopefully there's a lot more. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an inveterately curious person that's great i've always after something yeah. I, there's something new out there that i gotta go master exactly. and figure out yeah and see what's i'm the same on. way yeah yeah that's right too many fun things going on so. exactly but part of that just comes out of how many different places i've been different people mm-hmm. i've met experiences i go oh, that's amazing that's so fascinating and then i want to see what what's going on there so well let's start at the beginning yeah where were you born and tell us about your childhood well yeah i really uh midwestern kid uh born about 30 miles south of the wisconsin border up in northern illinois mm. and, and and spent my first six years in this little village called mount morris at two churches and a stoplight and uh wow. one was a brethren church and one was a lutheran church and half the family were brethren and half the family were lutheran half your family yeah yeah okay so i was lutheran and and uh, so we had to go. You know, we're here at Christmas time. I have real good memories of all that. Cause, and, and we had to go to both churches on Christmas Eve. You know, torture for a kid, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. bad enough to have to go yeah. once, but to go twice. You know. So you say so, half. Was it your mother's half and your father's half? Is that? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, really, kind of two different s- segments of my mom's f- side of the family. Okay. Uh, uh, but. Uh, so, so dad and mom were both were both Lutherans, but part of my mom's family was brethren, so cousins and all the relatives they they were all over there, and uh, so about an hour west of Chicago, mm. and and um, so grew up uh, really deeply, passionately devoted to. Uh, I'm, oh, that's strange mix of both a Packers fan and a Cubs fan. <laughs> so I have I have both Chicago and Green Bay stuff yeah. going on. Then we moved over to Northern Indiana, North Central mm. Indiana, and I grew up in a basically. Uh, uh, a soybean field outside a little a little city called Kokomo, mm. and and uh, then went to the University of Evansville for a year, and then moved to England when I was nineteen. 
mm. and and uh, lived in Oxford for two years and London for six. So eight years altogether over there. Then back to the U.S. So you, you mentioned that you grew up going to, to two churches. Was faith always kind of a, a central piece in your life, or was yeah. it just something your family did on holidays? Oh, no. No, no, no. Um, faith was always very central. It was just part of the fabric, mm. the rhythm of, of life for us. Um, I can't remember a time I didn't believe. If you'd have asked me when I was five, you know, uh, did I believe in the virgin birth? I'd have said yes. If you'd have asked me what a virgin was, I wouldn't have been able to answer, <laughs> but I believed it. Yeah. Uh, I grew up saying the creed, was baptized as a baby, of course, there in the Lutheran church. It was interesting to me. Um, again, very small, this little town, it was back, I'm, I'm so old, this is when churches weren't locked. Right. <laughs> right? You know? Right. So I would, at four or five years old, I'd, I'd ride my bike over to the church in the middle of the week and just, you know, put it up against the steps and go in and sit down. Wow. I thought God lived there. <laughs> well, and this is God's house, Well, it's right? God's house. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, there wasn't, I, I was born on Sunday morning at 8.30, just in time for Sunday school, <laughs> and really haven't missed any since. Uh, it's kind of the way it went. So we, we grew up in the church. Dad was the church treasurer. When we got to Indiana, we were involved in a mission congregation mm-hmm. of the Lutheran uh, uh, church and, um, LCA was then Elka now, and uh, uh, Mom played the piano. Dad was the treasurer. Uh, went through the building program, all those mm. kinds of things. So right from the beginning, church planting, mission, uh, sacrificing to see things happen. It was just we never really thought it, there was some different way to go about things. Got it. Yeah. So, so what was your what was your home life like? Good memories, mom and dad. Yeah. You had brothers, sisters. Yeah, I have a brother and a sister. My brother's name is Steve. He lives mm. here in Franklin with oh, okay. his wife, Dana. My s- sister is Deanne. She lives with her husband, Parviz, over in Nolensville. Okay. He's, he's from Iran originally. Okay. Uh, they met in France and were married there. Uh, great guy. Um, so, uh, wonderful memories growing up. Uh, dad and mom. My dad, it was a very blue collar upbringing. Uh, dad mm. was a, a factory guy worked in the printing industry. Uh, mm-hmm. That's really what was behind any moves that we ever made. They ever made, um, and, and I can remember as a little kid uh, one time um, with my mom taking lunch to my dad uh, at his second job, where mm-hmm. he was uh, working in a, a television repair place mm-hmm. after doing the night shift, you know, at the printing right. factory. And I remember th- this is this is you know kid brain. I remember thinking how great it was that my dad. Uh, unlike my friends, he had two jobs. My <laughs> friends' dads only had one job. Wow! You know, so dad's trying everything he can. He's, of course, being dad. He's he's going to do everything possible to put bread on the table. And when you're a kid, you know, really, we were we were pretty poor, but we didn't know we were poor. You didn't know. So the fact that we didn't know, the fact that we were just surrounded with a lot of love, wonderful grandparents close by, loads of aunts and uncles and cousins. It was a very faith-centered, joyful upbringing. It was completely boring and normal. <laughs> um, so I'm very, very, you know, you don't really realize how good it is yeah. until later yeah, and sure. you get out of it and you go, well, gosh, they actually gave us some treasures. Yeah, And we had great. no idea that's what we, we had no idea that's what we were getting. That's wonderful. So, so, you, wonderful. so go into your teen years, yeah. high school, then. Yeah, yeah. So in my teen years, I had, 
uh, my rebellion was religious. Mm. You know, I wasn't out smoking dope. I was like a Jesus freak. You know, I sort of got in on the end of the Jesus people movement, Mm. sort of big spiritual awakening. I was was kind of turned off by what I thought to be the, well, at the zenith of my wisdom when I'm 17, you know, the the, the deadness of of formal church life. So I ditched all of that and I want to find the most radical people I can. So I was full tilt in on, at that point, uh, the charismatic renewal mm-hmm. and movement. A lot of sure. good friends there, great people there, and and um, still a lot of good friends and settings here and in the U.S. in, in the U.K. that are, are, are would, would identify in that sure. particular stream. So I dove headlong into the into, into that mm-hmm. scene, and uh, so charismatic Pentecostal forms of Christianity. Not that interested in anything historical and formal. Mm-hmm. Uh, loved history and literature. So that was as a teenager? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was a teenager. Um, started preaching really when I was about 15. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, none of those <laughs> messages survive anywhere. Can you imagine uh, uh, the level of heresy? I mean, really, it's frightening. So, so, so then, uh, I, but, you know, one of the things that happened in all that was even though I love theology and I love church history and I loved all of those things right from the start, um, there there was this kind of understanding in some of those some of those scenes that you don't go don't go to seminary. Right. right. If you go to seminary, that's where you go to lose yeah, your. They faith. call it cemetery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a very negative view of that sure. kind of thing. So I kind of you know, I was sort of bought in on that. Mm-hmm. So my my university work was all in history and literature, which I equally loved, and and really. Flourished in, in in that area. Now, did you go to school there in the in the states, or I went? Well, I went for a year at the University of Evansville, okay, in Indiana. Then I moved over to the UK. Went to Oxford for two years, and then we moved to London and planted the church there in eighty one. Okay. So, uh, but what really shifted things was in eighty three. I met Francis Schaeffer. Mm-hmm. I was interviewing him for a Christian paper over mm-hmm. there in the UK, and he he really through a, a challenging conversation, pushed me to reconsider my position on a whole lot of issues. And that began a, a long journey, I think, um, towards a, a, a more was robust... There one, was there one thing he said to you that that, that just haunted you? And, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, what happened was I got, we were doing all this culture stuff. He was maybe... And these, I don't know if people you're listening even know Francis Schaeffer is well, Give us a quick... Back. Well, Schaeffer was, at the time, in the... 70s and 80s at the forefront of Protestants who were speaking about culture, right. and maybe the only ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was in you know Protestants had typically confined their remarks to salvation in reference to the heart, and hadn't really said a whole lot and about then, culture, and then kept their heads in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Schaefer was of course deeply biblical, but he was the only person in that scene that was writing about art. Or history, or philosophy, right. and, and so he was, and he was unique in that way, and, and sort of a pioneer. He led a, a mission station in Switzerland for, you know, people hiking around in the mountains looking for meaning, and they right. were hippies just stopping and going, "I want to s- struggle with my doubts and questions." And he was like, "Well, great, let's, you know, instead of the kind of more." aggressive evangelism. It was more of an apologetics-based, very welcoming, hospitable evangelism, which was able sure. to say, well, of course you've got questions. Of course you've got doubts. Let's, let's, let's tackle them. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a very fearless and unique approach. Mm. 
So he was well-known. He had just finished speaking at Hyde Park. And I, at this interview at Labrie in England, I asked him, uh, do you, at the end of it, I asked him a good Pentecostal question. <laughs> I said, do you think God will give us a visitation in our generation? Which is a way of saying, hey, you know, do you think revival's coming? Right, right, right. You know? And he looked at me and he said, I hope not. <laughs> Which is, of course, not what you'd expect sure. to hear. And, and I said, well, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, that would be a tissue paper revival. Mm. That was even more opaque. Mm. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, and he pointed his finger at me. He said, you and a lot of your fellow travelers think that studying theology is dry and boring and dusty. Well, it is. <laughs> he said, but it's like dry firewood. Mm. And if you would just spend the next 20 years stacking some of that up, then if the fire mm. falls, mm -hmm. there'd be something that would burn. Mm. With what you have right now, if the fire falls, it would be like tissue paper. It would burn really brightly for about 15 seconds. Mm. Mm. And that was one of the most mm. edifying, terrifying rebukes uh, of my arrogance so basically I've said, ever suffered. And it was, in other words, it was, he was saying, terrific. you're a mile wide but only an inch thick. Yeah, well, deep, uh, yeah, less, <laughs> less, even less, maybe. You know, yeah, yeah, it's tissue paper. Right. Right. So you're really not in a position where you've done the hard work of dealing with this stuff. And then it got worse. It did get worse. Because then he asked me, he said, why aren't you in a church that's, you know, part of the Reformation? You are a Lutheran. And I said, well, it was dead. You know, they said the words of the creed, but I don't think they really meant it. You know, it was kind of messy. And he goes, oh, oh. He said, so, so which church is it that Jesus loves? Hmm. The messed up one or the perfect one? Hmm. That's good. And I said, oh, well, <laughs> uh, I guess the messed up one. <laughs> and he said, that's right, but you don't. Hmm. That's good. You you want to be the pastor of the perfect church, where it's everybody's zealous, everybody's no doubts. All it's not messy. It's just it's perfect. That's what you want mm. because you think you're a perfect pastor. Mm. Oh, jeez, Bob. <laughs> well, you know. So how did you receive? Did you receive that, or were you yeah. like resistant? At no, no, no. I mean, I was undone. Mm. It was an Isaiah kind of moment. Mm. I was just undone, and I I, I got. I didn't know what to do with it all. I, I went to, I, I lived about five minutes bike ride from Spurgeon's Tabernacle at Elephant Castle in London. And I pedaled over there. I knew they had a Christian bookshop and I picked up a, my first Reformed Systematic Theology book. And I remember sitting on Clapham Common that summer reading through it twice mm -hmm. and beginning what became a journey into a more, more reflective, studious approach to theology and history and tradition. Mm. And that's led a lot of different places. But so I'm you start. So that. you started out this uh, Lutheran brethren kid, then became charismatic. Yep. And now you're in London. You're out of the uh, American subculture to some degree, but you're still yeah. in this charismatic subculture. And but it's it's a British one. It's a British one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Which is very different. Sure. In many ways, it, it is itself um, typically more scholarly. Mm -hmm. and more churchly okay. than it is individualistic. Got it. So still deeply experiential. But Talk about that for a second, if yeah. you would. Th this is something I think that um, a lot of people are wrestling with, uh, especially a lot of younger believers, uh, uh, people of faith, um, 
we seem the last 75 years as American Protestant culture in America to be very individualistic, self-focused versus uh, communal. And it seems to be that there's a shift now in this maybe even post-Christian country we live in, post-Christian world, that we're saying, well, maybe that's not what things are about. Maybe we need the community. We need the traditions. We need the history. Um, Talk to me just from a cultural perspective, what your view is that as someone who's been brought up on maybe both sides of those extremes. Well, the lens of viewing, well, viewing life through the lens of individualism Mm. is not peculiar to evangelical or charismatic Christians Mm. in North America. That's North American living. Yes. We we are a, a civilization which has developed around the idea of the cherished individual and the even right now, questions about identity are at the forefront of our culture conflicts because identity, personal identity, is so cherished a value mm. with us. So individual expression, individual identity, the worth of the individual, mm. all of these things. And, of course, every we could talk about the Christian roots of some of that mm-hmm. in terms of being image bearers of God. But God is himself a community. That's right. And so the idea that the individual alone is the full expression of what it means to be the image of God, though every individual is an image bearer, is is an inadequate discussion. But enlightenment thought, which reinforced and in some ways brought to the forefront the the notion of individual um, analysis, experience as the arbiter of truth and so on, um, that kind of fuel gave birth to our culture. So That's Christianity right. has in some ways in North America adopted it. Mm-hmm. And if you go back into the mid-1800s, especially post-Second Great Awakening, you've got um, a, a, uh, a culture of Christianity as it comes over the Appalachians and, and into the pioneer world, which is heavily revivalistic, mm-hmm. emphasizing individual experience, and in many ways is not churchly. All right. Uh, so that revivalistic component is a part of this. Uh, architecture shifted uh, so that even if you look at the way church buildings were shaped, they moved towards platforms where stars are at the front right? rather than apses and chancels and naves and that kind of setup. So everything became much different. Entertainment factors are, are part of that. So all of that has shaped who we are. Uh, European... Christianity, well, I'll, I'll just say British Christianity, in particular, that's my deepest experience there, has retained more of the communal aspect and, and in some ways given a more vibrant expression to that. Mm. So while uh, even something as simple, if we're talking about charismatic Christianity in, in the UK versus the US, the US would have highlighted a, perhaps in many cases, uh, uh, a particular preacher. He's right. the he's the big man. Mm-hmm. British charismatic Christianity would have emphasized uh, a team. Mm-hmm. That's an important team of people mm-hmm. that are doing a work. That would have been one very obvious difference. Mm. Uh, much heavier emphasis on community groups mm. than on um, a particular man on a platform giving a message. Got it. Just very different in its, its expression. Yeah, my son asked me yesterday as we were in the grocery store, he said, Dad, why did we 
as a country, never adopt the metric system. He goes, my teachers try to teach us, and none of us get it. And we, we don't. I go, yeah, same with me. In my high school. <laughs> and I said, and you know what my response was? I said, maybe. He goes, we're the only country that doesn't really use it. And he's, and I said, well, maybe just as Americans, we're just resisting it because. We like what we have. Well, we like what we we don't want to be. There's a, there's there's certain parts of it that you know we we got away from all of that. We don't want to be Europeans. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. we uh, we're not into that. Yeah, it speaks uh, so, to the individualistic. Uh, that's right. That's right. So I get that. Now I do think one of the things that's being recovered, I trust, in a many, in many quarters, is a much deeper appreciation of the fact that the the the, the church is older than than. Than 1975, right, right. So that we've got century, we're centuries deep, continents wide. We're we're part of this Asian, South American, African community, mm. this global church. The, let's look. The first 300 years of Christianity, there weren't white Christians. That's right. I mean, people got to let that sink in. <laughs> there weren't white Christians. So. Early ancient Christianity was was uh, Near Eastern, so we're and their and their theology. If if we were to go back and and categorize it and look at it and look at some of the tenets they believed, looks very different than much of modern Protestantism. Well, we're just unfamiliar with it. We have it, of course. Protestantism is in in, in some ways, unfortunately, evangelical Protestantism. I, I would hasten to make that distinction. Is 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 distinctly anti-historical. Right. They don't have a deep appreciation for history in many cases. Now, and some of and what would you say and tell me if you agree with or disagree with this. Some of the foundational doctrines of some branches of Protestantism, uh, that theology is only a couple hundred years old. Well, yeah. Sure. Yeah, they've 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 um, they're, they're living off the capital of the accumulated centuries of everybody else's labors. You know, they, they their Christology might be completely orthodox, and right. it comes out of you know Nicene Christianity or right. Chalcedonian Christianity. But it's but they would not even be able to give voice to that. Right, right. They're living off of it, mm-hmm. so they don't have to have that that wrestling match. But but then they come up with new fangled ideas that really aren't very helpful. Uh, nevertheless, there's there's I think a return to something which is more. Eucharistic, mm. uh, not at the expense of the word sure. of Scripture read or proclaimed, but certainly more Eucharistic. Um, something that has a deeper appreciation for history, that we're part of a, the communion of the saints, that we're part of a church which is here and above, and that that is one church with us. We have not lost those people. That's right. And we worship with them. Mm. And, and then... None of that, none of that needs to become empty form mm-hmm. that displaces fire and passion and life and light. All of those things can flow together. They did in Jesus. And, and so um, the, 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 the rootedness in history and apostolic tradition mm. and giving voice to that with, if I may, Put it this way, evangelical fervency, right? You know, Wesleyan fire, Whitfield fire, so right. to speak, uh, is 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 a healthy and good thing. 
Yeah. Well, I, I heard a, a Catholic priest say recently on something I was listening to. He goes, well, he goes, I really feel sorry in a way for you Protestants. He says, because at the Reformation, a divorce happened. He said, the Catholic Church, the mother got the, uh, the traditions, the saints, the liturgy, the structure, the church history. And the Protestants, all you got was the Bible. Well, <laughs> well... Well, one end of the one end of it did. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the radical end of the Reformation. Yeah, well, that was yeah, an interesting yeah, yeah. way to look at it. What well, you're saying is is that there's a return to say we can't divorce ourselves. From no, that. well, and of course, as a Presbyterian, I'm a Presbyterian minister. Um, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Anglicans would say we we've always had a churchly sure. theology. Uh, whatever weaknesses may may be present there, uh, we're, we've we've not we've not sought to separate ourselves from the church. In its in its ancient form. Mm-hmm. Now, I learned a lot, say, from my wife's side. Now, we have Tony and I have been married for thirty eight years. She grew up Catholic and Eastern As Orthodox. My, my wife grew up Catholic. Yeah, so she grows up in an Eastern Orthodox. Mm. Her dad's Romanian, Romanian Orthodox, and her mom's Cuban. Wow. So Catholic family. So Orthodox and Catholic in Detroit. Wow. And um, then we met in England. She's an American, but we met over there, and. Through her family, I get introduced to this whole other stream of Orthodox mm. Christianity. And um, I've really enjoyed my studies at the Cambridge University Institute for Orthodox Christian Studies over the last Yeah, several Orthodox years. So Christianity that's been a, has been a, been, a, been a joy to me. The last year and a half, I've been delving into that some. And one of the books you gave me was has, was great, very mm-hmm. instrumental as well. Um, I find that very uh, refreshing because um, it is a seemingly untouched stream of 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 thought and and theology and 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 way of being that um is very refreshing and and not un, not totally different no. but unique because you don't you don't go I as a protestant kid I never was encouraged to go study eastern orthodoxy well no no they might not have known it existed exactly but but you know it was like you know uh catholicism with an accent Right. I mean, what, what, what's going on over there? Mm-hmm. So one of the problems for orthodoxy, with a couple of exceptions, the Antiochians in particular, is that they get kind of stuck in cultural cul-de-sacs. Right. So it's, it's Greek or it's Russian or it's Romanian, mm-hmm. whatever. But uh, So those are hard to get into because you really feel like you're in a foreign land, and mm-hmm. so it's hard for us. But the biggest issue is this. Um, the, the, uh, they are, as a community of people, much more at home with mystery. Mm. We want everything spelled out yes. as Westerners. And I'm a Westerner. I am. I mean, down to my bones, I need the hymns. I'm a Westerner, mm-hmm. and that's who I am. So that, But our weakness is that we approach everything from a deeply cerebral position. And that goes all the way back. So we want to, um, with Aquinas, map everything out. We want to have all, be certain. We, we have to have this kind of certainty. We have to have, well, it's not just certainty, but a kind of precision. Mm-hmm. Body and blood of Christ. Uh, okay, I believe I, that's what I receive mm-hmm. in communion. Okay, how's that happen? Well, a Westerner wants to tell you how that happens. If this is exactly how that happens. Mm-hmm. Then the Easterner is going to go, that's what happens. <laughs> well, how's it happen? You're asking the wrong question. That's right. Receive. Mm. You don't, you don't uh, have to have an, a precise formula to have a biblical faith. That's but good. we want to formulatize everything. Now, I love confessions. I love crazy Eastern 
Orthodox is very strong on creeds, of course, but but it's vital for us to understand that the task of Christianity is not to give people easy answers mm, that's to good. tough questions. It is to offer them a person. Jesus does not promise to answer all our questions. Just presence. He promises to be with us. That's right. His living mm. presence in the church, in our hearts, uh, seen in this world. Uh, and, and so... We are we are in some ways, and again, now this is really kind of coming out of a, more of an orthodox framework. In some ways, not leading people to deeper precision, where if we're doing our job, leading them to deeper mystery, yes, wonder, astonishment. And isn't this the this is what people are scared of when you use the word contemplative or mystic? Really, that's what they were trying to get to, and a lot of the early church fathers were saying. The more mystery and the more unknowing or not knowing that you have is the deeper your faith and experience in grace. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the older I get, my circle of certainty keeps shrinking. Mm. You know, I have, I, I, the more I've studied, it, it's mm. the old, you know, the more you know, the more you don't know. Right. There will always be, God will always have more of himself to reveal to us. Sure. So we have to hear with Hosea, let us know, mm. let us press on to know mm-hmm. the Lord. For his going forth is as sure as the dawn. Mm-hmm. So he will always have more of himself to reveal to us. Mm-hmm. We will always be growing in our knowledge of God. So I want to, with Paul, know him mm. at the expense of all other things. Sure. So that's relational. It's not just right. intellectual. Not intellectual. And it's, it's mystery which is given to those who volitionally have surrendered, mm-hmm. not intellectually apprehended. Mm-hmm. So I go back to my five-year-old self. Parking my bike on the steps and sitting in there going, are you here? Yeah. What do you got to say? Right. I hope, I hope I I, I don't stop being a five-year-old mm. like that. Mm. Yeah. That's good. Maybe that's what Jesus meant when, Yeah. as a child. I, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Well, talk to me about... Okay, you were in England. You came out of that. How long were you there in, in England? We lived there in, for eight years. Were you married there? Yeah. Uh, well, we met there. We got okay. married back in the States. We came home to get married then okay. got right back to things there. Yeah. And then so you came home yeah. after the charismatic experience? Yeah, or? we were still charismatic, still leading charismatic happened? churches. Uh, we moved. Tony was from a, a small town in western Kentucky, mm-hmm. and uh, we moved back there. We thought, well, if we're going to start a family, we'll want to be around mm-hmm. grandparents. My family since then had shifted down here, this direction, mm-hmm. Nashville, Dixon, sort of Franklin area, mm-hmm. and, and uh, she was in, in, her family were in Paducah. So you talk about a whiplash. Yeah. I went from Paducah, Kentucky. Yeah, I went from London and 17 million of my closest friends to uh, Paducah. Wow. But while I was there, Again, I just love how this works. You just meet people, and people are always so interesting. One of the guys in the church we planted there was a fellow named Herb Chapman. And Herb was a guitar teacher there in Paducah, and he had a couple of sons, Herbie and Stephen Curtis. <laughs> and so Herb, of course, is giving guitar lessons to every, right. every kid in that town, right? right, right, you know? right. And uh, by that time, Stephen and Herbie had moved down here, and Stephen was something of a, a, a celebrity Christian singer and so on. Sure. But whenever he was back, he would say, you need to meet right. Scotty Smith. You guys would have a lot to talk about. And he's at Christ Community. And and uh, so one one particular weekend, I was down here and I, I mm. got a cup of coffee with Scotty. And that was another big conversation mm. 
you know, that kind of, then I moved into the PCA. That was, that was uh, around 99. And uh, because I met these guys like uh, Scotty and David Filson and Kevin Twitt and others that you probably know who were very kind to me and very generous mm. in their fellowship. And, and um, I thought, you know, these guys, we have a lot in common. I could, I, I think this is a place I can live. Now, now, uh, <laughs> you know, the reformed world uh, likes to have its food fights. Sure. You know, so it it, it, it it has its challenges and difficulties, but I I, uh, I wouldn't want anybody to think it was it, it just been an easy ride. That's certainly not the case. But uh, but I really rejoice in the, and the, in ironic, the places where I'm. I'm the living. ironic thing is you are pastor at Christ Community yeah. Church where yeah. Scotty Smith was the pastor yeah. who planted this church. He was the founding and pastor. retired here. And he retired here. That's right. So if you'd have told me. Oh yeah, well you'll just end up pastoring. Like, what? You know, no nobody prophesied that. Bob. Nobody nobody had that word of knowledge about that. Yeah. You know, so. Um, but you know, one of the things that that I appreciate about you and uh, other other men of faith that that I consider friends and mentors is that um, regardless of denominational persuasion, you always come back to the fact of um, it is about mystery. It's about the presence of Christ. But it's also about not running from uh, pain and difficulty. That those no. are, those are the places where no. our roots go deep, and some of the things, some of the, the transitions. I know another Bible teacher recently has said that I that I've wrote down uh, in my notebook somewhere. It's like radical transformation comes from great pain or great love, or a combination of both. Combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. And what. What was some of the great pain in your life? I know you mentioned to me before we started this podcast uh, that your wife's illness and some of those 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 struggles and those journeys that you've been through. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we talk. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, so ministry failures. Mm. You know, a lot of the things that uh, we set out to do had the kind of tissue paper foundation that Schaefer wisely noted they didn't work and when you come to the end of that and and you go this isn't working you know my theology doesn't work it's it's important. can you give me an example of that well i mean i mean the first you know we we were leading a church and and we we took it through a season of transition but all the kind of structures we put in place to think well that transition is going to be healthy and good well it just blew up and and um and of course one of the things that happens is you you, you begin to realize the limits not only of um uh, improper structures, but also um, uh, 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 wrong-headedness. On uh, look, in in the charismatic scene, there's some great strengths, and one of them is you know you have people from all these different backgrounds, and so you you, you gain a deep appreciation appreciation of the fact that God's working in all kinds of places. But it, let's talk about a really sinister problem, and that is the idea that um, Jesus comes to make everything better. Mm. Well, well, it, sometimes they don't get better. That's right. Actually, the pain deepens. People die. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have a theology of suffering, when you don't, mm-hmm. you can't shepherd people. You can't pastor people. Do you if, feel if, like the, a lack of a theology of suffering is is an issue in certain churches? No question. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, well, and that's not confined to the charismatic scene. 
That's that's confined. <laughs> well, it's, it's yeah, or evangelicalism, even in its approach to culture, which is triumphalistic in many right. many cases. You know, it's sort of a domination approach to culture rather than a being, or nationalistic. Well, that's, that's a whole other. Oh my gosh, that's another <laughs> podcast. But um, but if you don't have a theology that uh, will 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 uphold you at the graveside of the five-year-old who's drowned in his grandparents' pool. Mm. And you're comfort, you're, you've got to walk with the grandparents. If you don't have a theology that walks you through, well, uh, a lady named Phyllis in our church in Kentucky, she had a daughter, daughter had twins. The one twin was born with serious birth defects, died a year and a half into life. You bury that baby. Remaining sister, Okay, the the mother of this remaining girl, the mother of the twins, is driving home from work. She's hit by a drunk driver head on. She's killed. Now Phyllis, the grandmother, has got to raise this remaining daughter. Mm. We got a theology for that. Have we got a theology for for disaster? Do we have Do we have that? Where's God in that? Mm. I just came back from Poland, walking around Auschwitz, Birkenau. We got a theology for that. Mm. Um, because if we don't, if we don't have a God with us, an Emmanuel God with us, if we take the incarnation and we reduce it down to goosebumps on a Christmas Eve service, mm. rather than a God with us where people are starving and hurting and in a cancer ward, uh, at the hospice where people are crying because someone they love is leaving, if we don't have that God with us, then, then you know, you really need to drop back 20 and punt because right. you don't have Christianity. Right. Because yeah, Christ is the Christ of the cross right. of our suffering. So, I mean, in our own lives, we've seen it repeatedly. I've, I mean, gone through a lot and in the, different and ways. And the Catholic and Orthodox, they call that the Paschal Mystery, more of it. They have a <laughs> deep theology for that, right? They do. That God is, that God is, the cross is not a phase God went through. That's right. The cross is a revelation of who God is. Yeah, it was, it was archetypal. He, in yes. one sense. God is the suffering God. There was a cross in his heart mm-hmm. long before there was a cross on a hill. Mm-hmm. He's, he is the God who is humble, who is serving, who is suffering. This is our God. Mm-hmm. Here is your God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is who God is, the suffering God. Not, oh yeah, well, I, yeah, I did that. And now see, I'm, that's no more. No, this is who he is. And when he comes again, Jesus, Luke tells us, will gird himself and serve us. What? Mm-hmm. I mean, our reaction at the second coming is going to be just like Peter going, what are you doing? Mm. What are you doing? Mm. You shouldn't be washing my feet. He's going to serve us. What? I, uh, what? I mean, we, our breath is taken away. And it's at the, in astonishment at the mercy and grace of the revelation of who God is, this gracious God. But, I mean, for us, it came home in heavy ways. In 2010, Tony was diagnosed with... Uh, immune system disease called transverse myelitis, and it, it nearly killed her. Mm. Was not diagnosed right away. At first, there were two lesions on her spinal cord. They told me she had inoperable cancer and she wouldn't survive. And um, But that was a misdiagnosis. And the doctors worked very hard there in Austin, but they couldn't figure out what it was. She eventually was um, taken to Dallas to Zale Lipschey Hospital. At, in, and uh, there... There, through a wonderful doctor named Benjamin Greenberg, hmm. um, her condition was was uh, uh, diagnosed and treatment began. It was very difficult treatment. She had a very difficult 
difficult path ahead, especially over that first year. Uh, the damage to her spinal cord, of course, is permanent, and so she still suffers from a lot of symptoms that go with that. No need to go into all of that, except to say that it was a life-altering moment. We're thankful she wasn't permanently paralyzed uh, or, or died, because that would be common, both of those. Um, but certainly altered. What was that journey like for you? What, what, what were the questions, what were the struggles that you were well, dealing with? Well, and again, I don't think our, our particular suffering in that was comparable to many who suffered far worse. I've pastored people who've been through far worse. Sure, of course. So I don't want to, but I mean, but, but in it, you're going, well, where, when will this end? Um, was it, what, what bothered you more, watching your wife suffer or just the whole idea of it? It was my, it was my, the impact on our youngest daughter. Because mm. Anna was hurting in this, watching her mother suffer. And I, I'm like, how do I, how can I be a better dad? Mm. I've tried to be a good husband. I, I don't think, I don't think I'm especially good at it even now, but I tried to be there and tried to be a comfort and all those things. But I felt inevitably that Anna, because she didn't have her mom for a season, and, um, and I'm trying to kind of do both, um, I, I've I've really felt for her in that, and I thought, how does how does this impact her? Um, how does this you know? Uh, it was never a question of you know is God for us? Is He with us? It, it wasn't. What are the lessons? A guy, a neurologist, sat down with us in Austin. He was he was a he was a a, a poor neurologist and a worse theologian, <laughs> and he said. Um, and because he couldn't diagnose anything that was going on, he sat down with us finally after 10 days in the hospital, and these really quite horrifying days. And, and he said, well, we have nothing to tell you. Go home and read the book of Job. <laughs> Go home and read the book of Job. Bad, wow. things, bad things happen to good people. Mm. And I said, can you come outside for a minute? And I took him outside the room, and I said, I'll tell you what. You leave the theology to me, and I'll leave the neurology to somebody else. Don't ever come back in this room again. Mm. And he never did. I said, don't let any member of your staff in this room. And we just sat there going, well, now what? We have no answers. Mm. So I think sometimes the questions arrive with like, well, okay, you got a diagnosis, so now what? But we had no answers. We had no diagnosis. And we just didn't know, is she going to die? So in the middle of it, it was just deep uncertainty. And one of the greatest gifts we were ever given, which was this, you're not in control. Now, we're never in control. Right but we think we are. Mm-hmm. We live with the myth of it. Mm-hmm. I have stuff in my day planner, you know, for next week. Right. I may not live to next week. Mm-hmm. I think I will. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have to make plans. But the, the planning aspect means we think we're in control. Mm-hmm. But when something like that happens, you know you're not. And you're just given over. You have to be carried along. Like, like the guy on the mat that's carried by his four friends to mm-hmm. Jesus. We were carried by other people, mm. which is humbling. Sure. It, may, it was upsetting to me at a personal level. I, I, I was like, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be carrying other people. Yeah. People are carrying me. That's, that's not right. I felt guilt, shame. Mm. Isn't that stupid? Do you feel like— But that's what happened. Yeah. David, do you feel like up until this time—so this was 2010, so this was eight years ago. Do you feel like you— were prepared in the context of your faith and understanding of suffering that 
you had some sort of foundation there, or did this help to go even deeper with that? Well, no, I had the foundation. Okay. I did. I did have a good theology at that point. And I did have a good liturgical structure. We were mm-hmm. part of a wonderful church, Redeemer Presbyterian in Austin, Texas. Beautiful people cared for us. Um, the liturgical practices of that particular congregation were a huge strength to us. The hymnody. I feel so sorry, Bob, for people who don't have hymns. Mm. Who, who, who can't bring up those words and sing their way through these horrors. Mm. But you really can't. And, and we did have those. We had those gifts. Mm. And those gifts that were given to us by others uh, over the years, over many years, going back to when I was a child, um, allowed that year, year and a half. I mean, we were still dealing with it uh, after effects of it, obviously. But, mm. the, but that 18-month episode where it was really, really bad. Uh, and it was right on the heels of the economic downturn. We lost, you know, everything economically and all that stuff, you know. So it, it was just a bad chapter in our lives sure. um, where everything's fallen apart. And, and you've, it, it, but you have what you ha- are experiencing is not getting a theology of suffering, so to speak, but allowing the theology that you have to go really deep, mm. deeper. And, and, and you test it, and you find out, you know what? This Jesus thing mm. is real. Mm. Jesus is real, mm. and he will be with us in it. He will carry us, and, and that's what happened. And what did you walk away from? Uh, obviously, it's not, you can't co- encapsulate it into a simple phrase, but what would you say, how were you changed going into it and coming out of it? Life had to... For a number of years, slow down mm. dramatically. Mm. Uh, Is that because of your wife? Yeah, healing Tony, through it. Yeah, or? yeah. Tony's illness. The the way in which I mean, she, she had her own interior design, staging business, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. After this, she really couldn't do that. Um, there would be episodic eruptions of these symptoms, and so you, when that would occur, you just have to stop and you know, and go and take care of those situations. And so realizing that life wasn't something that you could just very easily plan out. Mm. You just, you're going to live a lot more one day at a time. And you live, I think, I think we began to live a lot more um, with open hands. Borrow an Henri Nouwen phrase, Mm. living with open hands, uh, where, where we're offering ourselves to Jesus in the day mm-hmm. and we're here we're, we woke up here we are we're yours we're your pe- we, we belong to whatever it is you, you're, you're doing mm. not to something mm. we're trying to build and make happen and our lives could end at any moment and that's fine mm. we're, we're just here we're at your mm. disposal and um, I think we were much more conscious of that after that mm. so it wasn't like trying to go do something right I'm on a mission. Right, right. <laughs> and your youngest daughter, she came through that okay? Or? Yeah, well, I, I think we should ask Anna. <laughs> uh, Anna, I think Anna, Anna glows in the dark. She's an incredible joy in our lives, and I think she's done incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, she'll make her. She's making her first mission trip with a uh, class in um, March next year. It's great, Chile, but. Uh, has a great heart for the Asian world and telling them about Jesus. So we'll see what happens. But, but um, she would be she would she would be the first to tell you that it was frightening. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and she still fears losing sure. her parents. And sure. it was so it made an impact. She felt like uh, um, it impacted her relationship with her brother and sister too. It was just a up time of great upheaval. So it made an impact. How I mean, long she's was five, this touch and go period? Was it over a period of a year or two years? Five touch years? and go with Tony's life was probably a month. Okay. Uh, whether or not she was good. Now, then, then the issue became, what does life look like? You know, and it's never returned completely. Oh no, 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 okay. it's, no. She's people who know her now. If they meet her, they will. Oh, she's just fine. And if you'd have known her before and after, you would know two very, from an energy standpoint, two very different. Has that been approaches. hard for you and your marriage in any way? Or sure, yeah, it's impacted. It's impacted that relationship. But in, but but. In, here's what I would say: it, it's made it stronger. Yeah, sure. Uh, not weaker. You know, so it brought us closer together, mm. not driven us further apart. And um, yeah, so I wouldn't say it impacted it negatively. So you, as a pastor now, and you're uh, on the other side of this, and here you are in 2018. Uh, all of those experiences have played played into who you are now. Uh, and so when, when you are teaching or preaching or leading uh, a church of this size, um, what is it that you hope that people, both inside your church and people who are coming from the outside, hear from you? Mm. Well, they better hear Christ. <laughs> they better, or I'm in a lot of trouble. <laughs> well, that's a given. Yeah. So I want them to have an encounter with the living God revealed in the face of Jesus. Mm. Scripture, in the scriptures, at the table. I want that for them because, and I, I want the, if they're here long enough, it's a peanut butter, it's a peanut butter sandwich operation. Um, i just put to you, what'd you have for dinner three weeks ago last Thursday? No idea. No idea. <laughs> but three weeks ago last Thursday, if you'd gone hungry, would you would you remember that? Absolutely. You'd remember that. Mm-hmm. So we don't remember what we had, but we'd remember if we were hungry. Mm. So here's the way it works. We we keep looking for uh, uh, some church or religious experience that's going to give us, you know, um, cane prime or sure. urban grub. It's just going to wham, you know, it's yeah. going to be the most amazing. Ama- state. Oh, my gosh. Now, I'm into all that. <laughs> I mean, I'm totally into it. All right. But 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 from a faith standpoint, it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. Because what happens really is this. If you grow your kids in the faith, they're going to be all over the place. If, if you're growing in the faith, you're going to be all over the place. Do you know what's going to happen? Talk, wait, wait, stop. What yeah. do you mean all over the place? Well, your, your, your brain is going to wander all over. Your mind, your soul is going to wander. You're going to have doubts and fears and suspicions. And You mean I'm not going to raise perfect kids? <laughs> No. I mean, almost perfect, right? I mean, I know you you and your kids are like almost perfect. So, you know, you know. but um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, you know, all you do is you put those coins in the slot. Now exactly. comes the coat, you know, it's the way it works, right? So, no, I mean, no, because what we're raising are sinful kids who need a savior. Mm. We keep trying to raise moral kids who've got it together rather than realizing they're sinful kids who need a savior. We keep pointing them to Jesus. So it's, mm. it's you know, weird. But um, if we if we do that, then we'll we'll give them. I think in the church, the security of a boring conversion. Hmm. 
My dad, I used to have these terrible fights with my dad when I was like in my teen years, when I was like I said, you know, really right. like I was Mr. Zeal on fire. And I'd gotten hold of that deal of if you don't know the day or the hour, then you don't really know if you're, right. you're safe, right? So I would say to my dad, you can't tell me the day or the hour. And I'd hammer at him. I said, and I, I was, you know, dad, you're going to go to hell. That helped. <laughs> that helped our relationship. And, and uh, finally, he said to me, I don't need to know what time dawn was to know the sun's up. Mm. And, and that was the end Good. of that. That was the end of that fight. <laughs> uh, some people have halogen conversions and some people have dimmer switch conversions. Yeah. But what happens is, is in the church, people get, they get the Lord's Prayer. They get the creed. They get the hymns. They get the scriptures. And over time, they're fed. And their faith grows and is secured. And it has the security to explore. To go, well, I have questions about this part of Christianity. Right. I have this question about this form of unbelief. I want to explore this area over here. But they can do that because they're secured in the faith. Mm. And, and it turns out that Jesus is not insecure. <laughs> and he will hold us. And he will help us. Do you provide, do you feel like, and I know you're going to, I know your answer. Um, do you provide an environment and do you feel like you're providing an environment for those who seriously have questions and doubt? Um, I hear from so many people that I can't, my, my church tradition or my church or whatever, mm -hmm. if I ask these questions, it, they can't handle it. I'll either be yeah. thrown out yeah, or yeah. I'll be, they, they get threatened or, you know, things, you know, doctrinal things or things that people struggle with all the time, but they're afraid to be honest about. Do you feel like you're providing an environment for well, that? Well, we want to. Yeah. I think the answer to that is we want to. Mm. We try to. Um, What's the biggest drawback? I don't think there's any drawback. I mean, there's a drawback. Like what, when you say you try to, why maybe do people not feel that? Well, I think I think in any uh, this is uh, I want to be careful here. Um, I, I don't think this is unique to Christ community or sure. in, in any any anywhere else. But if you're in the Bible Belt, right? Anywhere in the Bible Belt, I I, uh, I think there is sometimes a a root um, of fear and insecurity that mm. that does not allow people to explore hard questions. Mm. Whereas if you're in a place like Manhattan or Boston yes. or Austin or Palo Alto and you're church planting or you're leading, if you don't have a, an approach that says, come with your questions, um, you're not going to really be very fruitful mm. at all. You're just going to be a reactionary. Right. So I do think where, there, where Christianity exists as a, a majority faith, it can have an attitude of power and condescension. Here are the answers. If you have questions, either accept these answers or go away. Mm -hmm. That's unhelpful. So because we live in a culture here where there's been a majority faith uh, for a, a long time, I think there, there is a latent, dangerous sense that people do carry sometimes of insecurity and fear mm -hmm. that says, well, we, we, we don't need to ask those questions, you know. Mm -hmm. And then what that does is it drives away people who do have 
Mm. Really, they want to know. I've got some questions about sexuality. I've got mm. some questions about identity. I've got some. I've got some questions about how all that works. Um, I could go into a dozen pastoral issues here in this congregation that I could say this shows that we are living open-handed. We're handling the questions, mm-hmm. and we're handling people with questions mm. with gentleness. Mm. That's good. And, and, but but it would be unfair to mention those because that would violate. That would violate uh, the the sacred uh, order of things. You can't tell those stories. Right. But what I would want to say is there's plenty of that going on here. Now, I think what a, a minister, as a minister, what I have to do is bring this sense to it. Where the Bible is clear, I should be clear. And where the Bible is silent, I should be silent. Mm-hmm. And where the Bible is not clear in, mm-hmm. in its moments... Or at least the the lack. I'm I'm not clear about the Bible. Right. I should my my words should reflect that lack of clarity. Right. The problem isn't with the Bible itself. Uh, the problem's with me. It's, it's the, like with the, the humanity. Yeah, that's right. I mean, okay, so that's fine. But that means I've got to I've got to live with both clarity and charity. Mm-hmm. It's it's grace and truth. Mm-hmm. And. Um, if we don't hold both of those together, I think we're not going to serve people well. Yeah. So the truth that we bring has to be delivered across bridges of grace. Mm. If good. we don't, if we don't build strong bridges of grace and mercy with people, it won't. They won't. They won't be strong enough to handle the weight of the truth we want to bring them. Yes, that's good. I think that's a good ending point. Thank you for your time. I think we could probably go on for another hour, and maybe there's just part two coming. <laughs> Bring coffee, and we're in. We haven't even yeah, because we got to talk, you know, art, and chef, yes. chef absolutely. stuff, and all that. Absolutely, but it's been fun. Thank you. Thank so you glad for you're your doing time. this. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for being uh, honest and transparent. And um, like I said, uh, I want to have you on again real soon. Thanks, man. Thanks.